Hey everybody, welcome to Grounded Truth, a podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations on the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, the machine teaching platform for data-centric AI. You can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io. And please, please, please like, follow, subscribe uh, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere where you get your podcasts today. I'm super excited. Joining me today is my lovely co-founder and Watchful CEO, Shine Mahanti. What's up, Shine? Hello. Super excited to talk about. Uh, I just wrote a blog post um, that was published as the date of recording a couple weeks ago uh, called Data Labeling is Dead. Um, and I'm not fired. Shine didn't fire me. So uh, I think overall that's pretty positive. Um, wanted to t- we're going to talk a little bit about what exactly that means. Um, why is data labeling dead or at least maybe dying kind of go through the history of data labeling. How did we get here? Why was it necessary? What have been kind of the evolutions to get us to this point? What's what's changed? Uh, and then I'd love to dig in a little bit, um, with what we're doing at watchful to kind of respond to that, um, kind of with these shifting winds and understanding that, you know, data labeling fundamentally is whether it's dead or, uh, changed, uh, you know, what we're doing at Watchful to kind of respond to that. So really excited to dig in. Um, maybe I'll, maybe start extreme 101 here, kind of get philosophical. What's data labeling, Shine? How would you define it? Uh, yeah, it's just the process of like given some set of inputs, uh, like applying the potential outputs for each of those inputs and then showing that to a machine learning model. So it eventually learns how to perform that task. Uh, so labeling data is just all about humans performing the act that you want the model to do eventually. I'll, I'll add a little bit of uh, woo-woo sauce to that very engineering answer uh, of, I, I really think of data labeling philosophically as the ascription of a human concept to data in a way that's machine interpretable. Um, so just like you said, you know, the association of inputs to what an expected output, um, but really like what are, like what are those labels are strictly human concepts. They're things that we've made up. It's relevant because we've deemed them relevant for insert purpose here. Uh, and it's effectively been this process of just taking that human knowledge and then applying it to data uh, that matches to some concept that humans have like mutually understood and uh, described as, uh, as in, or I should say, defined. Yeah, I, I would generally agree with that. And so... When I say that data labeling is dying, I don't necessarily mean that data labeling is just dead. We were data labeling, we started originally as a data labeling company to focus on this uh, problem that was ever growing with the requirement of needing large amounts of labeled data uh, to train and develop machine learning models that performed well. Um, And it's not to say that that is gone, but I want to put a little definition around that in the way that as an enterprise or as a data scientist looking to develop a model um, prior to seven, eight months ago, and really a little bit before that, there was always this kind of requirement, a process box of data labeling in your model development workflow. Uh, you had to set aside budget, whether that's time or money on tools or on some outsourced service uh, to produce these labels. Um, but And that workflow, as we know it, the time intensity and the scale that's required to go zero to one on a performant model uh, is no longer necessary in many cases. 
particularly in NLP with the advent of uh, chat GPT and large language models. Um, it's kind of been a uh, long road to get there, but really like it's a, it's not that all of that's going away. I just think that companies are now going to shift where they allocate their time and capital in the development of these models uh, because of the advent of large language models. That, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I, I obviously agree with that. I have um, a very specific perspective, I think, on like the potential futures of the market. Perhaps we'll get there later on. Um, yeah, generally agree. It just this idea that we have, and you know, I think we'll we'll definitely get there a little later on on what labeling means today. But is this idea or in this reliance that we could have massive amounts of humans, this is a good segue to kind of like, how do we get here and what is data labeling? What do, what have data labeling companies look like or solutions have looked like? Um, this idea that you just need massive amounts of caloric compute in the form of humans to process all of this data and prep it effectively for these machine learning workloads. And uh, maybe talking a little bit about, about how we get here. Um, we've talked a lot about it um, and maybe some a little on this podcast, but uh, definitely um, interpersonally is there's definitely generations of labeling that has kind of evolved. And I kind of think of Gen Zero uh, as, you know, original labeling, just simple spreadsheet software, Excel, Google Sheets. Um, I still think that Excel will outlast us all. It's never going to go anywhere. It's a broad tool to many, many problems, but it's effectively how can we get these concepts from our brains into this data in a way, in a tool that we all have, spreadsheets. Uh, sit there, go and just row by row, ones and zeros, yeses and nos, class by class, uh, effectively solving this problem of how do I get, how do I prep this data in a way that makes sense? Uh, you lack version control, you lack uh, all of these kind of niceties that you would otherwise have, but you just brute force it. Um, hopefully it's right. Um, you maybe spread that out amongst a number of people, maybe or maybe not you're doing it in duplicate or triplicate, uh, but you're brute forcing it and it works. You know, It just takes time, effort, energy, quality can be great. It could be abysmal. Mistakes happen, but the, you still get it done. Um, and then we really saw the first kind of eureka moment in the labeling space, I think, was the advent of really a uh, mechanical Turk. How do we manage, or really it's not even manage, but how do we crowdsource now these relatively simplistic jobs to a large number of people effectively? Um, and I think cost, cost, prefer, uh, cost effectively, I think, is the key part there. Um, it's great. Um, you can quickly get a large amount of data. The quality is suspect, I think, at best. I mean, they even uh, the original calculators from Mechanical Turk say, yeah, you're going to want to get this in at least triplicate. So just go ahead and bake in minimum of three, uh, three rounds of labeling for each row that you present them uh, and then take an average or however you want to do it, the majority vote. Uh, and you will get data. Um, questionable on its quality, but it's scaled. Uh, the problem obviously being there's not a lot of, uh, if you, if your machine learning task was identifying which of these clauses had to deal with indemnity, let alone what type of indemnity and what are the implications were, uh, for each side of that contract, not a lot of people are sitting there, uh, just looking for their nickel, um, as corporate contract lawyers to produce that, uh, and we saw like Appen. Appen was a massive company. Um, I can't remember what their stock, you know, kind of peaked at acquiring figure eight five, six years ago now. Um, and it worked. And like, I think you, uh, there's still valid use cases for them today, but effectively just created this 
better and smarter way to capture this human knowledge by outsourcing it. Um, but then you have like clear problems of data security. Uh, just it's another service. It's dollars out the door, um, minimal control for the exactly what task was being performed, writing things out, the management of that, uh, management of different workers um, as they filter through and you know language barriers or whatever have you. Uh, and then I think really the, the, the big next leap was I recognize that I need data. I can pay a ton of money for it because AppN had multi-million dollar contracts with a number of large entities and organizations. Uh, and then again, just trying to eliminate more cost. How do we bring this in house? Uh, and we see label box, uh, I think was kind of the, the big winner out of that generation. Um, still just, I need it like it addressing those fundamental problems around data security, but now scalability was your problem. Uh, I need to hire these people. I need to manage 300 people that have high turnover. It's not a very glamorous job to be a data annotator in general. Um, still often outsourced, but maybe just under the company's moniker, but you get better data security or, you know, comfort, whatever it might be, uh, being able to use the IT infrastructure or something like that. Um, but fundamentally it still was throwing this manual problem and millions and millions of human hours, people hours to accomplish these tasks. Like the scale is unreal. I mean, millions and millions of dollars spent millions and millions of person hours, if not tens of millions of person hours to produce data sets to make sure that the glasses that were generated were on correctly to identify if this movie review was angry or not. Uh, and like these companies were and continue to be very successful. Uh, then this recognition, and I think uh, I'll let you talk, I'll let you add a little flavor to this, but then we saw this necessity for not only my own tools, um, but the need for automation. How do I minimize, again, the costs and effort and caloric expenditure required to produce the data? Um, and again, further kind of going along those same, uh, same key tenets, but with this big evolution of requirement of how do we automate this process? How do we scale this past just, you know, the person hours that we put, that we put into it? Yeah. Um, so you talked about Gen Zero being fully manual, just like labor arbitrage businesses. Gen One being kind of like, okay, I need to bring that in-house and I need an interface for managing my army of humans. Gen Two being something like in between where... Um, think like a prodigy type of thing where it's like, I have my own internal workforce, but I want to automate some of it. But like the way I'm automating it is like a semi-obvious way to do it. You know, just like throw it against an active learning model and see what pops out. Um, Gen 3 is kind of like where we find ourselves and some, you know, other companies where we're very focused on building kind of sustainable automation practices that will carry us into the future. So not just like, can I throw this against a black box, but more like, can I reason about what needs to go into this data? Can I reason about what is working? What's not? I need like a very fast feedback loop. I need to be able to like, you know, given any data set, I should be able to label it way faster using this mechanism than I would in gen one, gen zero, gen two, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that's that's generally the framework I use. Um, and that's like kind of historical information. I, I would also say that like, given the LLM landscape, um, things have, th things are, are shifting. So yeah, concretely- And like, so what changed? Yeah, so, so, so concretely I would say like, 
Um, we'll go like generation by generation again. It's like a lot of the tasks that Gen Zero like has historically been used for have been really low context tasks. And, and that's by design. It's like you have an army of humans that you're managing elsewhere um, or like the labeling company is managing elsewhere. They don't have context on your data or your specific tasks. So oftentimes the ask that you have of them are relatively low hanging fruits. Like I might need sentiment analysis or I might need like some very obvious categorization of my data that doesn't require a ton of like internal context. Um, so that's like one thing. And I think like concretely there, I cannot imagine in today's age that anyone is currently going to, you know, one of these like Gen Zero providers and being like, give me sentiment analysis data. Because now I can just go to an LLM and get that. And it's like actually pretty reliable. So like I fundamentally don't really need that army of humans anymore. Uh, just because like for those really low context tasks, they've all kind of been captured by these large language models. Um, so that's like one pretty major market change that I would say is like currently happening where demand for those types of services all of a sudden just like dropped. Now, I'm not arguing that Gen Zero companies are going to go out of business or anything like that. I, I still think that there's a fair amount of meat on that bone, but um, a pretty substantial chunk of the business suddenly just like went away overnight. The scale. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All, all of all of the quick, I just need data. I don't want to invest in you know a new method or learning something new or just I know I can get the results. Uh, all of those things or not, maybe not all of them, but a significant chunk of them can be kind of obviated or significantly, you know, solved with the advent of large language models. Um, yeah. And maybe it's worth tapping on that, that a bit. Why exactly? Um, have those quote unquote more let's call, uh, low context to be specific with our language, these low context tasks. Um, why do LLMs like address them fairly trivially like sentiment? Be because they're, they're trained on a lot of that data. Like there's a huge amount of that type of data on the internet. So it like these LLMs are trained on that data. Therefore they've captured that task and it's like very easy for it to just sort of like perform it. Um, exactly. So pretty much any low context task, <laughs> these LMs have already been trained on and they do a really good job. So you might as well use it. Yeah. And like, and I just think it's interesting. Ultimately, all of these generations have effectively been trying to minimize the amount of effort. Like, obviously it's like obvious man says obvious things here. Minimize the amount of caloric energy, human time that's required to prep or process this data. Uh, the big shift that in my mind with LLMs is because it's been trained on so much of this general, you know, the internet, quote unquote, um, it's shifted the economics of no longer relying on calories to produce a classification, to make a determination. But we can rely not 100%, but more and more on the quality of the outputs from these large language models by distilling all of that in something that is, you know, relatively Quote, uh, inexpensive to run still you know, yeah. fairly expensive on a, on a global scheme, but uh, relatively inexpensive. Yeah. So, so, so to be clear, I don't, I'm not arguing that um, LLMs have obviated the need for human involvement in like all tasks. What I'm saying is that for anything that's like really low context, uh, LLMs have basically like captured that. Yeah. And so if you look at the labor arbitrage businesses of the world, um, specifically around data labeling, 
um, all like a huge amount of that work has now like gone to zero. Uh, so then that brings us to, like Gen One, where it's like, okay, I have internal contractors. I have like an internal labeling force, and I need an interface for them. Um, I would still argue that a fair amount of that work has also been obviated. Uh, if you're comfortable sending your data to someone like an open AI, which these days they're signing, you know, data privacy agreements and they're like certain you know, tools. There is a stuff. path forward for. Yeah. The, yeah. The, like if, for a lot of these cases, if you're managing any significant number of people to do labeling for you, chances are it is fairly low context, you know, unless you're doing an insane amount of work on like training these people. Uh, or if somehow you have an, an army of subject matter experts that are just happy to sit there and label data all day, uh, both of which are unlikely situations. Uh, chances are the work that your army of humans is doing has already been captured by an LLM in, in some capacity. Uh, so I would say that going from like Gen 0 to Gen 1, you're still in the realm of like, you know, LLM can kind of just do that, which is great. Um, so now I think the question is like, okay, where is the gap, right? Like if, if, if that's no longer the gap, if the gap is no longer like I need humans to do these tasks for me, uh, where the task is labeling data or performing, you know, this like fairly low context classification, like where's the gap? Uh, right now, the gap is in the opposite. It's, it's in high context use cases, right. things that the LMs have not been trained on. Um, and that's not to say that the LLMs can't be given enough context to be able to perform the task, but it's the argument that someone has to capture that context somewhere and you have to have tooling and like, you know, some, some workflow around validating the output of the LLM. Is it what you want? Like that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's kind of like where a lot of the opportunity is right now. There is this like <laughs> massive market wide push for experimenting with AI in general, where LLMs are like kind of the buzzword. And I think as a side effect of that, there's a huge amount of interest in getting LLMs into more specialized areas of an organization that are actually needle moving. Most organizations are not going to see a massive, um, you know, needle move as a side effect of implementing like Twitter sentiment analysis, but right. they will see a pretty substantial lift if they're focusing on areas where they've historically been bottlenecked by not having enough subject matter experts to be able to perform a task. So in that world, you have this like catch 22 where you need subject matter expertise. Like you can use an LLM. It doesn't have subject matter, ex subject matter expertise. You need some way to distill it. Some part of that is prompt engineering. Some part of that is fine tuning. Where do you draw the line? How do you fine tune using your data? How much data do you need to fine tune for this particular task? You're like a whole bunch of questions that emerge from this. Um, and I think that's, that's where like, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And, uh, I mean, this is where, you know, getting kind of, uh, kitschy, but it's just like, I just look at a lot of that shift, like fine tuning to me, is just data labeling. It's just data labeling by another name. Um, instead of producing maybe the, like a target label, this is the, on the task that we're trying to do, identifying this is like quality. And I think that key thing of now in the realm of gen of like gen AI, uh, the ability to get introspection on quality of outputs and just what these outputs are or mean and like, like let alone correctness uh, has become like the big shift of what labeling workloads, at least in Gen in the Gen AI realm are going to look like in the future. It's yeah. No so let me, yeah. let me, let me just chime in because I have a, 
Um, I agree with that take. I just want to add a little bit more concreteness around it. Um, so going back to your original question, like what is data labeling? Um, I think historically when people think data labeling, they think purely categorical data. Um, so like I want to apply a category to this data. Um, so I want to segment it. I want to like classify it. I want to do something to it. Um, and that, that is, that is technically true. Like that is historically how we've thought about it, um, just as an industry. But the interesting part about these large language models, um, well, there's a lot that's interesting about them, but, but one of the things is quite interesting is that, um, at their core, all they're doing really is predicting the next set of tokens. Right. And in the event of classification, that might be one token. In the event of segmentation, that might be several tokens where some of those tokens are context, like uh, structuring around a data, you know, a data structure or something like that. Right. Um, in the case of summarization, it's just straight up tokens. You know, in the case of uh, generation, it's straight up tokens. Um, so as you think about fine tuning, it's still inputs versus outputs. It's like given this input, what do you like? What do I want you to do? But now the output is a sequence rather than a collapsed label. And so I think like thinking about it that way is actually quite interesting because then you can think of really every task as fundamentally being a sequence to sequence task where given an input, I expect some output that is fundamentally a sequence. And the sequence could be a sequence of one thing, right? It could be a classification. It could be a sequence of, of one thing and that's all you expect. And you have a constraint that's applied to that thing. So I get back a token. Already I know that's like, you know, in the realm of potential correctness. Then I look at that token and I'm like, okay, is it one of these five options? Because these are my five classes that I'm allowing. And if it is, great. It's within the ballpark. Like I, I, would, I would say that that passes success criteria. On the other hand, if you're talking about like a purely generative workflow, it's still a sequence comes out, you know, like maybe I'm trying to create an email or something out of like some bullet points. I can still apply some correctness criteria. Like I would expect a subject. I would expect a body. I would expect an opening and a closing. Uh, there's certain structural elements that I can apply to constrain the output, but it's still a sequence to sequence task. Same thing with segmentation, where if I wanted to do like part of speech for every token in an input, I know that given my input, my output should have each of those tokens there should be a value associated with each of those tokens. And maybe you apply some, you know, some conditions around the structuring of that. Here's the shape of the data structure. Everything is a list. Inside there might be dictionaries, I don't know. Um, so you're right that fine tuning is at its heart, like the same motion as data labeling. But I think like what's interesting about it is that there is a generalization around all of this, where it's all just inputs and outputs, but we've now restructured the output if we're going down the road of like LLM maximalism, where everything is just a sequence. And so now you think about, okay, how does data labeling have to evolve in order to adopt this type of mentality? How do we go from previously doing purely categorical stuff to now doing sequence to sequence? Uh, because that fits the model architecture better. Um, and so, you know, naturally, I slash we have lots of thoughts about that, but um, that's, I think, an interesting path forward. And just like talking a little bit more broadly, um, 
as we talk about fine tuning and so on, and as we're talking about LLMs, uh, we also have to recognize that the dust has not yet settled on how practitioners actually want to use LLMs in production. We're still very much in like the prototyping phase of the market where everyone's like experimenting and there's like some money being thrown around and like time and energy, but like frankly, a lot of excitement. Yeah. A lot of excitement for very little in production right now. And that's just like right. a reality. Uh, there's only so many, and there's the reality is, is there's only so many companies at least from their, uh, you know, core operating model that are truly transformed by LLMs. They, they are out there and they are, you know, working on it diligently, but it's not, this isn't just a panacea for all problems across the board, technically. For yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But, but then like, that's an opinion, right? Yeah. I think people are trying to search for what is backed by data. And I, I think fundamentally, we just don't know, like, what are the things that LLMs are fundamentally good at versus what are the things that they're fundamentally bad at? Um, I think we have a sense of both, but there's nothing that like really indicates that LLMs absolutely cannot do this type of thing. And, th and that's neither here nor there. <laughs> kind of the point I'm trying to make is that we're still in this like prototyping phase and there's lots of potential futures we could end up in. Uh, future one is something I hinted at earlier, which is this concept of like LLM maximalism, where on a long enough time scale, perhaps, uh, it, you know, the only models that people decide to use in production are ones that they just basically wrap an API call around. So right. really they're just manipulating API parameters to interact with like chat GPT in various ways, like GPT-4 or something like that. Or the, the like, singular few model AGI future or something like that. Yeah, so something like that, right? Where like these models are produced by a small set of model providers uh, and everyone is just wrapping APIs around it and then deciding at some point, maybe they want to fine tune that model to do something a little bit more specific. Um, so that's like one potential future. I frankly, uh, I, I don't believe that that's the likely future, but interestingly, that's kind of like the trajectory that a lot of like the market is on right now. Um, so it's just interesting to sort of ride that particular roller coaster. The second mm -hmm. option, which I think is a lot more likely, and frankly, in my opinion, a lot more interesting, is a world where um, people continue to use LLMs for whatever they're good for, um, which in a lot of cases might be like pure generative workflows. So yep. like bullet points to emails, stuff like that. Um, maybe some amount of like discriminative tasks and things like that where they can constrain the output properly. Um, but in a lot of cases, what they might decide to do is leverage knowledge and information from these foundation models to then train mm -hmm. their own smaller, more bespoke model. Um, the benefits of doing that are that you end up with a model that is way faster and cheaper to inference against. Uh, you can run it within your own infrastructure. So you can control how the API works and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and depending on the model or architecture you decide to use, you might be able to guarantee certain shapes of outputs. So in right. the case of a discriminative model, you don't have the potential of hallucination from an you know, upstream LLM. Um, ideally, you're using like a truly discriminative model and you get an output that you can expect. Uh, so in this case, you can go from a model that knows a lot about a lot and then translate that knowledge into something like a model that knows a lot about a little. Uh, and oftentimes those models, those smaller models tend to perform, outperform the larger model. Um, right. So there is also like a, uh, a metrics oriented reason to do that. Um, so I, I mean, I personally and, and think philosophically, that's at least the approach that 
the, I think theoretically, I don't know if it's confirmed, but that open AI is taking with a mixture of experts. Like it's yeah. a, several small models, smaller models tuned for, a spe, you know, specific, uh, like tasks. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about all of that as well. Um, but like until open AI comes out and says what their model architecture actually is, like, I think it's immaterial to actually like even discuss it. Uh, in theory, the optimal, like the optimal way to do this would be like lots of small models that are like, you know, specifically tuned for specific tasks. And that also implies that someone has a taxonomy of all the possible tasks that the model might be asked to perform. There is some sort of like scheduler, like very intelligent scheduler layer in front where it's like intelligently figuring out which of the models to dispatch to. And then there's like a load balance. Like that becomes like a fairly complex system. Not to say that OpenAI is not capable of doing that, but um, I'd want them to say that this is what they're doing rather than everyone like yeah, scheduling yeah, yeah. it. Um, it's like maybe. But I think like from a more practical perspective, there is a reason why an enterprise would choose, really any company would choose uh, to train a smaller model in place of like just doing a ton of API calls to someone like OpenAI, if nothing more than like uh, a pure sort of like just cost perspective, like GPT, inferencing against GPT-4 is pretty expensive. But if I can get the same information from GPT-4 and train a much smaller model and it's like way faster to inference against and I have like a lot of data or a lot of requests that I need to serve, that's like beneficial for me. 100%. Uh, so that's the second option. Third option is this is all like LLM excitement and that will suddenly like die out. And then like we'll come back to the traditional machine learning world that we've always known about, which is like people continue to label their data for specific use cases and they train their own models for specific use cases and so on. I think that is also very low likelihood. Uh, so in my opinion, the most likely outcome is outcome number two, where some portion of the market will continue to use LLMs as the primary model. Some portion of the market will use the output of LLMs to train their own models. But in both cases, like thinking about the properties of the system that you care about, whether it's performing well or poorly, that's like super important, be able to collapse the outputs and things that are realistic, applying constraints to the output that you know you can reason about, uh, being able to reason about where the data came from, how you got there, you know what you have to do if your model is drifting or you know predicting incorrectly. Um, these are things that everyone's going to have to do anyway. Uh, and I think like we have some tooling for that in the traditional machine learning world. So you can go from like the LLM to your model, and then you can reason about all that in your model, but. We lack all the tooling for that from the LLM perspective. And now the question is like, is the onus on the LLM providers to offer that? Or should there be generic tooling that you can plug any model into? Whether it's like, you know, an LLM that you own, uh, your own smaller model, an LLM that you don't own, um, you know, might not matter. So I'm personally of that camp where I think like kind of regardless of what target architecture you might have, you will always need to reason about a certain set of things, which is like, how did my model get here? What is it doing well at? What is it doing poorly on? What are the things that I need to change in order to get a better outcome? Um, all of these things are questions that you'd ask regardless of the model yeah. architecture. In my opinion, cost, and cost and latency. Yeah, yeah. And then at that point, hopefully fine tuning becomes a decision that you make as a mechanism for cost management, you know? Yeah. Um, as opposed to like, let me try fine tuning because 
prompt engineering is getting a little too hard. Like in a perfect world, you're not just trying things and seeing what works or what doesn't. You have kind of a set path where you look at your result and you're like, I know exactly what I need to do next in order to get better performance. So I think it's a pretty good segue. What are we doing about it, given all of these uh, shifting winds and changing workflow uh, here at Watchful as originally going in as a data labeling company uh, and seeing kind of the, the way the world's shifting? And uh, I, I do agree with you that the middle path is the most likely. I do not agree in uh, LLM maximalism. I don't think that there's going to be one or a handful of APIs to rule them all for all of the reasons that you just stated, primarily cost and latency at at least the enterprise level level, maybe, you know, just for uh, one-offs in the, your average consumer, there's still going to be a massive market for it. Not to say that there's not, um, but it's more than likely going to be leveraging the LLMs for what they're good at and or distilling uh, relevant knowledge out of them and then training your own and deploying your own model for uh, all of the same reasons, performance, costs, and latency ultimately is all it really comes down to. Uh, yeah. Whether, so for all of our watchful customers listening to this, um, <laughs> let me tell you what you can expect. Uh, so again, three possible futures. Future one is LLM maximalism. Future two is um, LLM bootstrap or bootstrapping using LLMs into your own moderate alism. Uh, yeah. And then uh, option three is we're going back to the good old days. Um, let me go bottom up. So short answer is no matter what future we end up in, Watchful will still be around and you'll still get value out of it. Um, so let's let's talk about like option three first. Uh, that's status quo for us. Um, that's exactly what we exist for uh, or have historically existed for. Uh, you load up data, you have a small amount of like human inf influence over this thing. And then, you know, it just sort of automates the process of getting that training data for your model. Great. Uh, option two is bootstrapping using knowledge from LLMs. Uh, coming soon, you will be able to create hinters that leverage props against your favorite LLMs. Uh, what this means is that the labels produced by Watchful will encapsulate some of the knowledge from an LLM, and we'll actually ensemble them together uh, through a mechanism called prompt ensembling. And you can ensemble them along with your other hinters as well. So it's not like an all or nothing type of thing. You can create very simple hinters like you have been, uh, some more complex ones with your own models, and then you can also ratchet up into the prompting world. Uh, we will also give you a prompt playground where you can evaluate your prompts, see how well they're doing, what's working, what's not, uh, kind of like a whole test suite, so to speak, for prompt engineering. Uh, and that way, when your labels come out the other end from Watchful, they are capturing a lot of that knowledge from LLM. So then your downstream model will also have those insights. Uh, so that's sort of like case two. Case number one is LLM maximalism. Um, this is where like prompt ensembling becomes particularly important, where if you put all your hopes and dreams into one prompt, oftentimes uh, the LLM will hallucinate just because that's what it's designed to do. Um, it will perform reasonably okay most of the time. And then like, you know, for the remaining 20% of the time, it will perform poorly. And then you'll have questions about like, what can I do better? How do I reword this prompt to get a better result? And sometimes it just, there's nothing you can do at the prompting layer. Um, you you have to kind of like get your hands a little more dirty than that. So um, our whole argument for that is prompt ensembling, where instead of having one prompt, you combine the outputs of several. We learn statistically what the outcome probably should be. So even if, you know, one or a couple of your prompts hallucinate, 
we will know historically this is how they performed relative to your other prompts, and then we'll be able to statistically give you what the likely outcome should be. Um, and in this world, you could even use Watchful in production. So we'll kind of collapse the output of several prompts for you, uh, give you one answer that is quite good. Uh, really in production, that means that you're, instead of running one prompt, you're running N prompts on some data, which may not be the economic structure that you want. Uh, so at that point, you can then decide if you want to fine tune using the data coming out of Watchful, which would then collapse your end prompts into one. Uh, so basically, we're designed for all three of these potential futures. And we've been thinking really long and hard about where this market is going to sort of make sure that no matter what direction it's going, we have a very clear opportunity in all of them. Yeah, 100%. Like, I think it's the, the big thing is, and, you know, I kind of had, when I originally thought of this blog post, had like this Jerry Maguire moment of like, oh, we, we need less, we need less clients, more time, you know, or something like that. Uh, and just realized that you may or may not even understand that reference, Cheyenne. Uh, <laughs> show me the money. We're, uh, I'll, I'll send you some homework. But uh, kind of this moment of just like, you know, there's, there is this big shift, but ultimately, and, you know, in your words, this like three potential futures, it's up to us as a company and you know everybody else in the data labeling space to recognize that there is this shifting wind. Uh, we are well positioned and continue to work on the things that are important to take advantage of it. And I really do believe in that middle path of, I, I call it LLM moderatalism. I'll coin that right now, yeah, a, a trademark, um, where the reality is, is that I think Large language models, particularly those provided by the major a API providers, are going to continue to excel in a range of tasks. Uh, I think you're apt to say those simple generative tasks are going to be easily solved. Um, maybe even the personal assistant, quote unquote, uh, with kind of the current chat, GPG, chat interface, um, Claude, et cetera. Um, but the reality for those cost latency and performance concerns and just seg segregating what an LLM is particularly useful at, being able to take advantage of it in a meaningful, sane, explainable, and interpretable way, and then being able to make the most out of that caloric in, uh, caloric investment by the humans who inevitably, the data science and, and data analytics professionals who inevitably are going to be holding the brunt of this work, uh, minimizing and the amount of effort they have to do and maximizing the amount of output. Um, so not to say that data labeling is dead, it's really just changing. It's all labeling at the end of the day. Uh, but just the kind of expected inputs, outputs, and the workflow ultimately, I think is what this recognition and what it means for the enterprise data science leaders and uh, our customers is this, uh, recognition of where they're spending those calories, um, and how they're spending them is, uh, is, and will continue to shift, uh, hopefully yeah, uh, if, less if, and less and less. If I can sum it up, like in a tiny nutshell, uh, data labeling is evolved. It went from a purely categor like categorical type process that was cal calorically bound to something that's a lot more uh, hopefully programmatic uh, and a sequence to sequence problem. Uh, and that is like basically the shift. So yeah. uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, labeling as a concept will remain, but uh, the constraints around it have shifted. We can no longer afford to do it manually because all of the tasks that were reasonable to be done manually by an army of humans are basically already captured. So the only things that are remaining are the, are the things that require specialization or the things that are like fundamentally needle in the haystack problems. And those are both very difficult to do by throwing humans at it. So we need 
more compute oriented ways to do this. We need ways that are interpretable and explainable and iterable. Um, and we also need a generalization around not just discriminative tasks, but also generative tasks that fit the model architectures that people are looking at right now, which is largely sequence to sequence. So long story short, a lot of exciting stuff for us. And uh, I think the market to realize over the next six, 12 and 18 months, um, it, I cannot wait to kind of see where all of this starts settling and the big improvements of the major API providers and just uh, the continuing onslaught of open source innovation uh, to see what, how, how much more effective everybody's getting with these smaller and smaller models. So um, fun conversation. I really appreciate it, Shine. Uh, just wrapping up for our listeners here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, I'm your host, uh, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful. Uh, if you liked what we talked about want to learn more, please go to our website at www.watchful.io. You can give Watchful uh, Community Edition a try for free today. And uh, if you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, follow on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts today. Thanks so much and uh, look forward to talking to you guys soon.